something. I am a faller, okay? I fall all the time. Look at my body, okay? I have not seen my feet since the seventh grade. These tits, it's like a fleshy Ikea shelf. Truly, I cannot see my feet. My whole body is shaped like a drumstick emoji. You see this shit? It's a drumstick emoji. For real, she meaty on top, nubby on the bottom, fucking delicious. Kristen, this episode of Unladylike, we are basking in the glow of one of my favorite comedians. The hilarious, weird, wonderful, and warm Michelle Buteau. Air horns, air horns, air horns. So y'all just heard a clip from Michelle's first stand-up special, Welcome to Butopia, now streaming on Netflix. And when we got on Zoom with Michelle, it felt like she was doing a stand-up set just for us. So if we could just get started with having you introduce yourself, just tell us who you are, where you live, and what you do. Oh my God. So my name is Michelle Buteau, spelled like Bureau, but with a T. Get into it. It's the first time (laughs) I've ever said that. I am a stand-up comedian that really loves to sit. I love happiness (laughs) and joy and Black Girl Magic. I love heated yoga classes, but not too hot. You know, I don't need to feel like I'm in an episode of Naked and Afraid, like a 40-day challenge. I, yeah, my love of rotisserie chicken. I just left to like finger fuck like a very juicy breast. I'm so sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. And I do like dipping sauces. What else can I say about myself? This is terrible. This is why I've never done like a blind date. Even just like (laughs) Any, like, internet dating situations, I'm always, like, over-explaining. And you remember, like, internet dating back in the day when it first started? You had to, like, write a fucking thesis. I'm just like, why is this about me in seven parts? Now it's just, like, a body (laughs) type. And I've already decided that I'm a drumstick emoji, but we already know that from my special Welcome to Butopia available on Netflix right now! (laughs) Did I answer your question? That is maybe the best, greatest self-introduction we have ever had on Unladylike. (laughs) Caroline, I stand by that statement. And we've had some pretty incredible guest self-intros. Yeah. And Kristen, I will stand by this statement. Welcome to Butopia is a fucking delight. Like, I give it five out of five Unladylike middle fingers. (laughs) Well, those middle fingers are well-earned. Michelle has been doing stand-up for 18 years now. I first heard her a few years ago on Two Dope Queens, and she was a fucking riot. But lately, she has been popping up all over the place. Yeah, maybe y'all saw her last year playing Ali Wong's childhood best friend in Always Be My Maybe. How are you feeling? I'm pregnant as hell. And I am so mad at Kate Middleton. I was driving to work this morning thinking about her taking those pictures on the hospital steps, like what, three hours after she had a baby? And she had that royal diaper on. You know she had that diaper on. I don't want you to talk about that stuff okay. in front of the customers. Cool, cool, cool. She's currently starring in the First Wives Club reboot on BET Plus and hosting fan fave isolation reality show The Circle on Netflix. It's been less than a day in the circle, and already one of our eight players, Alana, has been blocked and denied that 100K. Oh, it's a jungle in there. 
And she's raising twins. And, and she's got a new book out, too, called Survival of the Thickest. And just like she does in her stand-up, Michelle bears all today about the three Bs. Her body, her boobs, and her babies. Michelle grew up in New Jersey, the only child of a Jamaican mom and a Haitian dad. In Survival of the Thickest, she writes, We were the light-skinned family no one could quite put a finger on. We were the white sheep with weird accents, exotic food, and loud music no one's ever heard of. So, Michelle, what kind of girl were you raised to be? (laughs) Oh, I wish my mom would answer this shit right now. (laughs) She would love to answer this. I was raised to be a polite young woman. Um, You know, I could definitely have an opinion, but don't be too opinionated. Um, Don't laugh too loud. Definitely don't burp. Um, Don't talk about sex. Don't be sexual. Don't, you know, it was a lot of like, um, I I felt like growing up, I was like Mm -hmm. a secretary of Mad Men. It was just a lot of French rolls and turtlenecks, truly. (laughs) My mom would straighten my hair, cover my freckles and take me to church and force me to like shake a bunch of people's hands and, you know, say random boring shit. And I just wanted to be like loud and make eye contact and, you know, just like throw my head back and cackle. And I just, um, yeah, I felt like I was really trying to be something I wasn't and that there was something wrong with me because I wasn't like them. And when you say like them, are you referring to your your parents? Yeah, I mean, mostly my mom and her family and her friends. I just wasn't like them. Everybody was so polite and meek and quiet and would go to the kitchen and just be, you know, and to cook and clean and just be like, boys will be boys and just, you know, would never really stand in their power or force an issue. And I'm like, ugh. I can't wait to grow up and get out of this house so I can do whatever I want, like a fucking Puerto Rican version of Footloose, which has probably been done already, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So your new book is called Survival of the Thickest. And, Michelle, what does thick mean to you? Ooh, what a good-ass question, girl. You know, thick is sort of a state of mind. Thick is a category where you kind of have to make your own category. People like to say things like you're thin or you're fat or whatever. You have problem areas. But, man, sometimes you just thick. Sometimes, you know, you just got some more meat on your bones than others. And there's nothing wrong with that. Thick is a celebration of whatever gut or back fat or whatever the fuck you got going on. Like extra, like top titty meat or like even between the thighs. Like you could just like start a fire with some corduroy pants. Thick. (laughs) Delicious. Yum. Michelle could have used that kind of celebration growing up because when she turned 12, she was dying to get a brand new purple bike for her birthday. But instead, surprise, she got boobs. I really felt like Tom Hanks in Big. Like, it was crazy. I really felt like I um, went to a circus and then I put like a quarter in like a Zoltar machine and woke up with titties. Like, You know, I went to Catholic school and everything was buttoned down. And, oh, you know what happens when you have titties and it's buttoned down and one's always bigger than the other. So, God, it was was crazy. I'm, like, trying to hold on to this button. 
like Liam Neeson trying to save his daughter and taken. I'm just like, <laughs> oh my God, how are we going to do this? And that was just a wild transition because, you know, you're still playing with Barbies and you are trying to figure out how you can watch Electric Company or whatever the fuck I was watching. And now I'm walking to 7-Eleven to get a Slurpee and I'm getting catcalled by older men just, just sort of receiving this unwanted sexual attention. And it's gross. And it's just fucking gross, you know, to be objectified. Um, at such a young age and and like not even have someone explain what that is to you because especially going to Catholic school, all you know is don't have sex. That's it. Don't have sex. You're going to (laughs) die. Don't do it. Don't masturbate. You're going to go to hell. Like that's it. No one ever teaches you like, how do you walk down the street and and handle getting catcalled when you are um, just trying to get home to do your geometry homework? Did getting boobs overnight change how you saw yourself or felt about yourself? Yeah, for sure. I thought something was wrong with me. I didn't look like the other girls. And, you know, at that age, all you want to do is sort of like fit in with everyone. You don't want to stand out. You especially don't want your body to stand out. And so if we're going to Macy's and we're trying to find something for me to wear at church and I have to go into the lady section, it's just like, well, I guess it's just like the cross. I have to bear, you know, and everything was just black all the time. And there were shoulder pads and I was like 14. I just felt like a Puerto Rican Johnny Cash. I'm just like, what is this? You know, when Walmart and Old Navy came out with like maxi dresses, I'm like, ah, I am Beyonce and dream girl. (laughs) Just like tripping over like so much cloth, always with a wedgie beyond. Well, speaking, speaking of titties. Tell us how having big boobs is like rocking a super short haircut, as you put it in the book. Oh, my God. That is so funny. Look, having big titties is like having a Sinead O'Connor buzz cut because you have to dress around it. It's like, well, man, if you wear a V-neck, it's like, wow, she's really asking for it. Look at that whore with that top titty meat. Her chest looks like a little ass crack. And if you cover it, it's just like, did she just come off a compound somewhere in Utah? What's wrong with her? Why don't she celebrate her body? They're also so heavy. So if I'm walking down the street and I'm hot and I can feel a little rash under my titties starting to fucking grow and a guy's just like, smile, mama. It's just like, do you want to have an extra 13 pounds on your chest, sir? I wish you did. And then I can come up to you and be like, why aren't you smiling? Heavy. You know, I say in my special, I really want ass wiping money. Like I just want someone to wipe my ass if anything happens to me. And that is true, but I also would love someone to just, like, carry my tits around because, Lord knows, I'm done. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I used to name them, like, Muffy and Buffy, but now, like, I'm just going to call them, like, misogyny and, like, patriarchy. (laughs) Caroline, I'm renaming my A-cups Unconscious Sexism because they might be hard to see, but they're definitely there, (laughs) especially if it's cold. We're going to take a quick break. (laughs) When we come back, Michelle Buteau makes a life-changing titty decision. Don't bust out. We're back with Michelle Buteau, who is so charming, y'all. Even her Zoom audio delays are memorable. Hello? Did it change how you saw yourself? <laughs> oh, sorry. There's a delay. 
We're here. We're here. We're here. We should probably say there is a delay. So if you hear a weird silence, it's not us just sitting here staring. I promise. (laughs) I felt very lonely for a minute. Oh, Oh, no. Hello. Um, I'm sorry. Oh, my God, Kristen. I am still nervous sweating over sending Michelle Buteau into a panic. (laughs) Is it weird that I'm still just laughing about it? (laughs) Okay, so... When it was time to look for colleges, Michelle wanted to get out of the Jersey burbs. She chose St. Thomas, a university in Miami, and that location change was liberating. Miami and South Florida is just like one of those places where it's like no other place in America. So many different cultures that um, celebrate their bodies was fucking wild. It is like a little... Do you remember like that scene in Hustlers where like the uh, homegirl goes to the back room and everyone's just like, like Lizzo's out with like her tits and the flute. And then like Cardi B has like a chocolate cake and then like everyone's just walking around just like completely comfortable with their bodies and like stiletto fucking shoes, um, whatever the fuck. That's what Miami was like. Everyone was just like hella comfortable. All the ownership didn't matter if you had a front wedgie, which I call a fudgy. A back wedgie. Yeah, it was just like a wonderful, wild time, especially in college where I like just needed to see people that look like me and that didn't look like me love on their bodies. But Michelle's boobs still felt like a burden. Literally. One boob was a triple D and the other was an E cup. They were physically uncomfortable. So much so that she eventually decided to get a breast reduction, and it was a game changer. I felt free. I felt like um, this is what it's like on the other side. I felt like I was 10 years old again in some respect, where I'm just like, I can just run. I can go running and not worry about how slow or fast I go. I can go into a store and just put something on. That's never happened before. I can go into a bus or a train or into like a crowded hallway and not hit my tits up on somebody's back and be like, excuse me. I remember one time going to church with my parents and like at the end of Catholic mass, the priest waits at the door and um, shakes your hand. And I remember going to shake the priest's hands and he hit my boobs by accident. And he's like, I'm so sorry, child. I'm like, you're forgiven father. But like, (laughs) there was like a thing that I had to like, explain to people like, oh, I'm so sorry I hit your tits. I'm just like, it's okay. I'm used to it. I didn't even feel it at this point. Um, (laughs) Because I'm dead inside. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) South Beach might have been a body positivity haven for Michelle, but that wasn't always the case on campus. In Survival of the Thickest, Michelle recounts a college professor who actively shot down her on-screen dreams. I mean, you know, again, this is Miami, right? Where everybody on TV that's a journalist looks like Sofia Vergara. And so I want to be a journalist. And because, you know, I love um, being creative and production and I love storytelling. So I was like, this is my thing. And entertainment reporting just came out. And I'm just like, oh, if I could be on ET, that'd be a fucking thing. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we went around the class and the professor wanted us to say what our major was. And so I did. And he said, you know, I got to tell you, you're just simply too fat to be on camera. And I didn't question him. I didn't 
you know, do anything. I just kind of felt embarrassed, but also just like, okay, right on. I, I didn't have the audacity of hope to be like, you know what, professor, fuck you. I'm going to go out and do it. You know, um, mm-hmm. there's no YouTube yet, but I'm going to start a channel somewhere. Like, <laughs> I just sort of believed people. And so I just sort of like, you know, was definitely happy and had my opinions, but wasn't opinionated. Didn't want to rock the boat and didn't think that I could do something for myself. Just thought, you know, you get a job, you put money in your account, you get married, you live in an apartment with beige carpet and white blinds, and you go to the Rainforest Cafe every weekend. Like, that's what you do. And um, nothing, there's anything wrong with that. But that just wasn't my journey. And I really believed it was for so long. So for years, Michelle worked behind the camera, pursuing work in TV editing and production. It wasn't until 2001 that she took her first big step toward making her own lane. She was in her mid-20s, working as a local TV news producer in New York. She'd been considering stand-up, and her friends were always encouraging her. But Michelle just didn't think a comedy career was sustainable. Then 9-11 happened. Michelle was working 16-hour shifts, editing horrific footage, reliving the trauma day after day. I mean, it was horrible. And she was like, fuck this. Like, I might as well do what I actually want to do. So on September 14th, 2001, Michelle did her first stand-up set. And she's been doing it ever since. It took time to get good at it, but I liked it from the beginning. And I realized, damn, this is home and this is where I always want to be. And how could I ever fucking let myself not do it simply because nobody looked like me on TV? Be the change you want to see. Even if no one is listening, it's like fucking for you. And you keep doing it and doing it until somebody wants to listen. And you're just like, oh, yeah, I got some experience doing it because I've been doing it by myself in a corner of a fucking room. And so I'm a late bloomer when it comes to um, making my own lane and believing in myself and you know, letting people have their opinions of me and not letting it affect me. And I don't know if that professor is still alive, but I hope he has a Netflix password because fuck him! (laughs) We're going to take a quick break. When we return, Michelle shares what it's like to get on stage and make people laugh while going through IVF and processing pregnancy loss. Stick around. So what has it been like to raise not one but two babies amid a pandemic lockdown? It's wild, but it's good. I don't know anything else, though. I don't know what it's like to have one. Like, maybe for like a half hour when one is still sleeping and one's up, I'm just like, this is nothing. Like, I I used to judge um, Kevin's mom in um, Home Alone for forgetting her kid, but I get it. All them kids, all them bags. <laughs> Kevin, you gotta figure it out. We're back with comedian and working mom, Michelle Buteau. Michelle and her husband have twin toddlers, Hazel and Otis. For five years, Michelle tried to get pregnant via IVF. But after four miscarriages, she and her husband decided to pursue surrogacy. She talks about the experience in her Netflix special, Welcome to Butopia. 
You know, I was sad. I was sad that I couldn't carry, but so happy somebody else could, you know? I decided to make the best out of it because you have to, because life is still happening. So when my surrogate was waiting to go into labor, my husband and I were at the bar next door having a glass of wine. <laughs> and Oprah says you can have it all, but not at the same time, but I think you can, honey, because I did that shit. We do want to talk about your IVF and surrogacy journey a little bit. Could you share, starting with IVF, like what that process was like for you and sort of how it affected your relationship with your own body? IVF is a wild one. You know, you go through stages, at least I did, where I was like, I have to do IVF. That's fucking sad and unbelievable. So I had to mourn the fact that I couldn't conceive naturally. And then when I was in it, I'm like, this is fucking expensive, but tick, tick, tock, let's go because it's supposed to work. And then you forget that because you're putting these injections in your leg and your arm and your stomach or wherever else you can find that's not like bruised and sore. You're like, okay, that hurts, but let's keep it going. And then you're out and you're just talking to someone and you start crying for no reason. And you're like, what the fuck is wrong with me? And then your husband leaves crumbs on the countertop after he makes a sandwich. You're like, I want a divorce. <laughs> you're like, wait, what? You know what I mean? Like, you're like, oh yes, I am full of hormones. And then you, for me at least, there was a stage where, you know, I kept getting pregnant and losing the pregnancies. And my other friends that got pregnant when I was pregnant, it's like, they were able to carry the term and I didn't. And so like, I'll still see their kids and be like, Oh, that one would have been this age. And that one would have been. And so it's like an ongoing reminder, but it's also one of those things where anytime you get over the fucking mountain, you just have to be like, fuck, I am so strong. And I am so much more compassionate and empathetic to like anybody going through anything fucking hard especially when it comes to their bodies. But it sucks. And you also feel like the government is punishing you. Like sometimes being, it feels like with healthcare and being female, like you're already a pre-existing condition because you're a woman. Yeah. And I didn't realize until hearing your story that pursuing surrogacy comes with so many legal hoops. Like, you know, some states don't allow non-relatives to be surrogates. So at what point did you decide to pursue surrogacy? And were you and your husband kind of aware of all of those hoops you were going to have to jump through? No idea. But it was such a wild time for the both of us because it felt like for five years trying to conceive was just being in a panic room. And as soon as we found like, we felt like we found a clue to get to the next stage. There was like, no, 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 no. You're still stuck in this room. Keep going. And so even with surrogacy to realize, well, after the fourth miscarriage, my husband was like, stop doing this to you because to your body, because I need my wife back. Like he was like, how many times can I pick this poor woman up off the floor and then drive to the airport for her to get on a plane to do shows. So it was just, just swimming in a dryer of emotions. And so when we finally decided on surrogacy, we're like, okay, this is what the next thing is. And we'll just take it like day by day, meeting by meeting. 
check by check. And then like, you know, it was really overwhelming if I really had to, if I really sit down and think about it, but he was so positive, which was so fucking wonderful. And even like friends like Jordan Carlos and his wife, you know, they'd always say stuff like, you know, Michelle, there can be a, there can be a happy ending. There can always be something good. So just hold on to that. And I did. And it was really important to have friends just say, shit can work out. But not everyone in Michelle's life was so compassionate about the surrogacy. And, you know, it's always an awkward like, conversation to have when you run into somebody because they're like, what's your birth story? I'm like, expensive. <laughs> <laughs> but I ran into one of my neighbors in New York and he's just like, oh, how y'all been? I'm like, good, man. We just welcome these boy-girl twins. And he's like, oh, you know what? I don't mean to offend. I said, but you're gonna. <laughs> give it to me. And he's like, I know a really good diet if you want to take the baby weight off. I said, that is so funny you say that. Because we actually had a surrogate. And then he goes, what's a surrogate? I said, oh my God, this is why we need more federal funding for education so people know what the fuck is going on outside of your two-mile radius. I'm fucking done. Let's get educated, okay? It matters. So... I'm explaining it to him. I was like, our DNA, she's a carrier. A miracle happened. We have a family. She's an angel walking on earth. I see his eyes going. And he goes, oh, is it like Handmaid's Tale? (laughs) And I knew I had a choice. So I said, yes, exactly like Handmaid's Tale. After going through so much to have her twins while simultaneously breaking out on the comedy stage and on screen, Michelle has zero fucks left to give. It's like, oh, just take the shame out of shit. I'm so tired of people shaming people for what they want or don't want, what they are going through. Like, I would get so much unsolicited advice, like maybe if you lost weight, maybe if you didn't work as much, maybe if you didn't travel as much. It's like, you know, you're not even a doctor. You know what I mean? You're not even a doctor. <laughs> you can't even get through a Zumba class. How the fuck are you going to tell me what the fuck I need to do? Get the fuck out of here. How did you go through all all of this during this time period and still get up on stage and be hilarious? I don't know. I just feel like, um, you know, stand up. Yeah, I'm there to make people happy, make them laugh, but it was also just as fucking big and wild and important for me to be up there too because I have so much fun doing stand-up. And I feel like if people don't have fun, then that's your bad because you are paying for the stand-up and I'm getting paid for it. It was just like... Um, And uh, a sense of normalcy, you know, just having something to do. There were times where I'm just like, do I have to take this 5 a.m. flight to L.A. to pitch a show that I just fucking wrote? And don't forget my doctor's notes and all my needles and fucking put my progesterone suppositories on ice, my dry ice, so they don't melt. Like, it it was fucking wild. But, you know, when you want something, you just get it done, no matter what. What, What's your relationship with your body like these days? Sort of going full circle. Yeah. You know, um, I feel like with my body and also with, my mind and my spirit, there's always going to be a to-do list and that's what life is. And, you know, you just don't 
wake the fuck up and be like, oh my God, I have these Kim Kardashian fucking hips and waist. You know what I mean? It's like always a thing. And for me, it's just it's acceptance. You know, I've been through a lot. Um, I've never been heavier, but I've never been happier. And I feel finally like settled into all the parts of my body. I have a dope partner who doesn't mind lifting up my belly to find my puss when he needs it. And that's fucking amazing. You know, I um, couldn't carry my children, but I worked hard for those embryos five fucking years of injecting myself with crazy just to like have these beautiful beings walk the earth. And I'm so happy I got to finally meet these souls. And I just feel like, you know, Man, this is such a fucking dope place. I wish somebody would have told me when I'm 23, I would just, you know, be this bitch right now. Just like happy and healthy and just like lucky to fucking be alive and not on a ventilator. All right, y'all, you can check out Michelle Buteau's book, Survival of the Thickest, wherever books are sold. Plus, find her on Netflix. I mean, I swear she's in every show on there now, so go support her. You can follow her on Twitter and IG at Michelle Buteau. And you can find us also on IG, Facebook, and Twitter at Unladylike Media. You can also support Caroline and me directly by joining our Patreon. You'll get weekly bonus episodes, listener advice, and our undying love at patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. Nora Ritchie is the senior producer of Unladylike. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Production help is from Camila Salazar. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing is by Andy Christens. Sound design and additional music is by Casey Holford and Andy Christens. Executive producers are Peter Clowney, Daisy Rosario, and Unladylike Media. This podcast was created by your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin of Unladylike Media. Next week on the podcast, it's us. Caroline and I are interviewing each other about 2020, mental health, problematic white ladies, and plenty of our own personal baggage. We are getting real, (laughs) and I'm totally not nervous about it at all. (laughs) Kristen Conger, how are you? Today, I am good. Yeah. And what does good mean? Good means that I'm not in an anxiety spiral. I'm feeling very grateful today. And for me, it's the biggest challenge is maintaining perspective because there are a thousand things that I'm not doing that I wish I was doing. And there are a thousand ways that I feel like I am not living up enough to the the politics and the ideals that we espouse on Unladylike. So that's, yeah. that's how I am. God, that's a long answer to a question. But also, how do you answer that question this year how without you- <laughs> either just like, uh, or like a thesis like I just delivered? Y'all don't want to miss this extra special episode. It's the last one of the season and of 2020. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike. Find us in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. When we come back, Michelle Buteau makes a life-changing titty decision. Don't bust out. 
I always sound drunk when I say titty decision. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you are. (laughs) Stitcher.